Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Broken Oars podcast. And we have, we are, we are going back to our roots today. We are speaking to an everyday man about rowing. We are talking to a modern coach, Aaron. Let us know a little bit more about our guest. We are joined today by Daniel Armstrong, uh, currently um, coach of Tyne United Rowing Club, also a coach of Durham University Boat Club. History of rowing going all the way back to his junior days. And he is that rarest of things with us. We tend to have coaches who straddle both divides, who, who, who remember the pre-professional days of training people with whips and chairs. And no, we're not going to mention Dennis at this point. But Dan is young. He is a youngster. And he has only ever known British dominion and success. He is a modern coach with modern ways. And we are going to sit at his feet and listen and learn today. Dan, thanks for joining us on Broken Horse Podcast. Lovely to have you on. I'm, I'm just going to tell you, how old are you? 24 next week. My word. Yeah. 24. Remember those days, Leon, of being 24? Uh, just about, just about. Um, they were remarkably good fun. That's fantastic. You, I'm, <laughs> I am, I am speechless. Genuinely certain that you are the youngest guest we've ever had on our podcast. That's oh. a privilege. I'll take that. I, I, you know, I mean, we obviously aren't counting my mental age in that. No, thank you. It's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I like uh, takes of our chats in the boat sheds in sort of late winter and actually get to move it into a sort of a warm environment and we can just have we can just sort of chat normally and extend the chat we always get cut short by people wanting to actually get on with the session when Aaron and I talk so it's nice to actually just have the uninterrupted time to just chat about rowing Dan what we usually do is we invite our guests to give a, a little bit of a brief history of themselves so this will be as Stephen Hawkins once wrote in his very early draft a brief history of Dan could you mm. fill us in a little bit about your background now my understanding is that you you are um, a chap from Hexham. Now, Lewin has this has this belief that if you get anywhere north of Watford, the the landscape turns into a blasted heath of dragons and Grendel type monsters stalking the moors in search of Beowulf. Can you tell him a little bit about what what Hexham is actually like? Because I was born there, and it's it's a very very nice part of the country. I, I've suggested it, it might be the the northernmost tip of Chelsea or Knightsbridge or somewhere like that. I think. What we should remember is that you and I were born in the same hospital. We were. Just many, many, many years apart. apart. Yeah. But the same hospital nonetheless. It could have even been the same room. But posh Northern is a little bit of a hard one. But then at the same time, like you said, Durham, that sort of whole thing. Um, the wooden, I don't have the accent, but that's more like my grandmother does not like the Northern accent. So that was um, persuaded out of me as a child. <laughs> And Hexham doesn't help either because it is seen as quite a sort of like a middle class type area far enough away from Newcastle that you don't really get the accent. I wouldn't go as far as saying it's the northernmost outpoint of Chelsea because I've been to Chelsea and Chelsea looks nothing like Hexham. But it definitely sort of fills into the little stereotype that it does have in some ways. Is it possibly the northernmost outpost of Cheshire. <laughs> I don't know how to take that. Cheshire's good. I, I lived there for, I mean, th- this is the thing. Aaron sort of acts as though I am an ignorant southerner, completely yeah. unschooled in the ways of the north. But I did actually live in the northwest 
for four years. Yeah, you've got to say northwest in that though. Like Czech yeah, but- is not like it's not the north. The north is like Middlesbrough and below, and then you get into the Midlands, and then you have the south. Yeah, north. The north line is very high. I wouldn't even put Manchester in the Manchester's not in the north. Manchester's part of the Midlands. It is part of the Midlands. Like when people, you can tell if you if you're a northerner and like a true northerner, you can tell by asking the question. And I have that at Durham because you go and you're like, right, where's the north south divide? Or you ask somebody where they're from, and if they say they're from the north, but they're from like Leeds, they're not from the north. They're from the Midlands, and you can tell an awful lot about a person from where they say the north south divide starts the north the northerner is like the north like properly properly right at the top the where middlesbrough is on the bottom of the map on the bottom on the bottom of the north should i say not the bottom of the map you know if you were to draw a line like straight across the country east mm-hmm. to west everything above that line is the north and then it can be on the west coast but it's still like in the northern part of the country you can't see this, dear listener, but Loon is now Googling maps of Britain to see. I, I, I am. I, yeah. I, I, I need it. I need to and, know. And Hexham is like smack bang in the middle of almost no man's country yeah. and no man's land. It is very nice in the sense that it is a northern part and you get all those sort of the nice things that come with the north with like friendly people who will like talk to you in the public rather than just like when you're in London and nobody will look at you or make eye contact with you. <laughs> But then you have, but then you have like you have a really nice rural part of where I live, which is lovely, and you certainly don't get that in Chelsea. As a country, as a, I would put myself as a country boy more than anything else. I've grown up in like a semi-rural area with access to the Northumberland National Park and like the Lake District, so middle of nowhere type stuff is lovely, and that's the best part about the north and sort of where I live. That's my favourite bit about Hexham. It's tiny. And there's nothing happening here, but it's really close to all the type of like really nice places that you just want to, you just disappear into. Yeah, you can go. We, I grew up in um, Car Shields, just past Allendale. I, I, I had experience before uh, school got serious, and I have to say, living in the middle of nowhere, I, I, I think everyone should try it, young and old. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. I was tweaking down slightly there because. Um, as you've noticed, my my Geordie accent can come right in when I really need it, like, but then I can rein it right back in as well. And that's a bit yeah. of kind of having lived in Aberdeen, Edinburgh, London, Manchester, and Sheffield, it kind of mm. goes up and down. You have that social chameleon thing going yeah. on. And and the the parallel with, with Chelsea was deeply unfair because when you see a four by four in Hexham, the farmer actually needs it. He's not just using it to take his children to school in the morning. Yeah, exactly. Just because the leaves have fallen in autumn doesn't mean the four by four needs to come out. Those right? leaves in Chelsea in autumn can be lethal, Dan. They can they, be they lethal. Can, yeah, they, and I would go further than Dan. I would say, Lou, and if you ever came up to have a paddle with us on the Tyne and I, I took you down to Bladen, I would say that the, the South basically begins when you cross over the Tyne Bridge in Newcastle and you start heading in that direction. Anything north of the Tyne Bridge is the north. Anything that like Gateshead and down over, you're basically in a suburb of North London. Mm. When you get to Durham as well, that is that is definitely a satellite hub of the South. I mean, as, as far as I'm concerned, proper north starts basically at the kind of the D estuary. You, you, draw, you draw a line going east from the D estuary and above that it's you're in proper north and and that's that's always where i've just kind of pictured it 
And strictly speaking, I think the Northern Independence Party kind of had it there as well. They, they followed county lines more, but it was, it was definitely around there somewhere. If we're going to follow county lines, we can go back to the time of the Vikings when we basically had seven kingdoms and Northumbria went all the way down to just beside Westminster, in which case we'll have our land back, you thieving bastards. <laughs> uh, I, I think that, um, firstly, I, I never thought, Lewin, that our friendship would come to an, an end quite so dramatically on a, on, a, on a podcast over where the North actually begins, but it appears to be doing so. The reason why I brought it up, Dan, was because Hexham is, it didn't actually join the new blue wall in the last general election. It's one of those rare places mm. in the north that's always been fairly conservative always been fairly middle class it, it has a strong element of landed gentry and landed gentry mm. pursuits among the among the uh, tenant farmers who are scraping out a, a living up in car shields and nent head and places like that yeah and the question is how did i wanted to feed into how you actually got into rowing in the first place and i'm guessing it's not the middle class enclave that you that you grew up in was it sporty background as a child, sporty parents, or was it just an, an element of trying different things and finding one that clicked? No, it wasn't like a, uh, it wasn't like a particularly sporty parents thing. Um, like my dad played rugby and he was a very good rugby player. You know, he was sort of like England trials as a, as a rugby player. So he was quite a good player. Um, but he sort of stopped, he, he got injured and stopped playing sort of, uh, my mum didn't particularly play any sports. Um, so it wasn't a particularly sporty family thing that sort of got me into it. It was more like I had a family friend, like my brother's like godmother, her kid, her son rose at my high school. So my high school is one of own one, like one of a, one or two, or maybe even like the only like properly state school um, rowing clubs in the country. Okay. So it's a completely non fee paying school um, funded you know, entirely as you sort of would see as like state school. It's not like public school. It is a state school and, and it's one of the only ones to ever have a rowing club. And it was just something that I had. It, I'd, I was terrible at football. It was never some football was never something that I was ever very good at at all. You um, can't admit that, Dan, because we, we are men of the north. We are born no, with a ball yeah. at our feet and a number nine was, on our back. I was definitely, my brother was. My brother was definitely born with a ball at his feet and a number nine on his back. Um, but I definitely was not. So football was never the thing. Um, rugby became a bit of a thing as I got a little bit older. Um, but I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with the injury side of rugby. Um, I was rowing and playing rugby at the same sort of time. Yeah. They were both overlapping and it was getting to the point where like, I would get injured with playing rugby and then obviously not able to row. And it was like my coach at the time sort of sat down and said, look, you need to pick one in the nicest way possible. Like you need to pick one because you're, you know, I, I was in like the first boat for my age category. And I use the inverted commas for the, for the, the listeners, sorry, the, the listeners that are still here and haven't switched off already yet. Um, All of the ones from York. Yeah. yeah. Everybody. <laughs> Which is now in the Midlands. Let's just sit down to look, make make a decision because you're either in this boat and you, you can stay in it, or you can continue to play rugby and you can continue to row as well, but you just won't be in that boat because you're getting injured and you're hurting your back. And you know, we like the idea of solid, stable crews that train together. Yeah, so was it was it a case of you? I mean, 
obviously it does happen, but you're less likely to, to have eight other people piling into you in a boat, whereas on a rugby yeah. pitch, it's practically mandatory. Yeah, exactly. That was, you know, I was, a, I played hooker, so I was getting like stood on and like, you know, onto the floor and people are piling on top of you and I was just getting crushed, basically. Yeah, you're getting uh, matched up. People, yeah, people were just standing on me like every week. So it was like, right, make your decision, choose a less impactful sport, basically. And I think because, and my mum liked that decision to change sports completely. Because obviously my dad had got injured playing. She was like, you know, like a mother does. Like every time I was, like, she was like flinching every time I was playing. So I just got onto that. And the, the he, he, my family friend had done it. And he really liked it. And it sort of, it became something that like sort of absor- absorbed his life. Like his life was just around it. And I really liked that whole idea. I was like, oh, this looks great. It looks really fun. It's different. Um, it's a chance for me to sort of really excel on a sport that, or try and excel on a sport that is a little bit different and, but is appealing and it's appealing to me in a different way, like the same way that appeals to every to like loads of different people that row, that whole dive into it completely and you buy into all the different types of training and it can, does consume your life, but in a way that is like actually quite special. It's, it you know that whole bitten by the bug thing of just being totally immersed in a sport that becomes your life. It's not just like you, it's not that you are, you are a rugby player and you play a bit of rugby. You are, you are a rower and rowing becomes part of your identity. It takes up all your time. And I really did like the idea of that as a kid. And it was just fun. I did also just enjoyed it as well. I hadn't like gone through puberty properly. Yet. I was still sort of like fairly small. I hadn't sort of started to grow. So I just enjoyed rowing because I liked rowing. Like it was, I didn't have any real performance goals or aspirations until I was like 16 and I did my J16 year that sort of like summer between J15 and starting J16 you know I kind of grew like four inches and lost a load of weight just and then I was like right now I can move into it and that's when it sort of started to become more and it, it allowed me to grow into the sport and I sort of grew into it that way if I didn't, if I hadn't grown up in Hexham, if I'd grown up in Allendale or Hayden Bridge or one of the other sort of t- uh, towns near Hexham, it wouldn't have been something that I would have done because it was only my high school that had a boat club. Can I ask, Dan, was that was that Hexham High as you go up? Um... Like Queen Elizabeth, yeah. As you, yeah. Yeah, and, as you go and, up the Allendale Road. Yeah, yeah. You turn left up at the Fox as you're going that yeah. way and it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's on that road. The reason that I ask is Loon and I have talked about things, you know, this is a different topic of conversation but we've talked about the shameless pot hunt where basically you you, you take your crew and you go around all of the small regattas and, and mm-hmm. small clubs and small rivers in the country which is such an important part of british rowing but we tend to focus on the big stuff on the thames yeah so i'm guessing you essentially learned on the on the time up at hexham absolutely I, I learned my craft you know in in that sort of sense and that's not me trying to say like i'm an expert in my craft but uh, i again i was having this conversation with the the friend I was having dinner, uh, lunch with today, I've done the, you know, talking tarn regatta in the middle of a hailstorm in June. And I've done Rutherford Heads in November when the water froze inside my all-in-one. Like, I've done all the hard miles. I've had the, you know, I've done all those little races where you've got to wake up at five o'clock in the morning and drive to um, one's better regatta and it's muddy and the bus gets stuck and you've got to push the bus out of the field and things like that and you've fl- like wellies are flood I've done all of that 
and it was and that's fine it was like a rite of passage and i do agree with you where you guys have talked about it in the past put a international gb rower into a program like into a club like that where they have to just kind of learn the, the deal because i think it, it makes you a much more rounded uh, competitor in the sense i've done all those races i've made all of those mistakes i've not put foot plates in properly i've put seats on backwards i've double crabbed and taken the wrong line and gone through the wrong arch and got all the time penalties and been shouted at for you know overtaking incorrectly i've done all of that stuff um and i think it's really good to have that knowledge base because the reason we were talking about it today was you know i'm i'm I was involved at Durham with the development program. Durham has been a very successful program over the last sort of 10, 15 years. And I was very privileged to be the coach for two of those years. Um, And what I love about the program is it takes people who have never rode before and puts them in a performance environment and allows them to sort of achieve that thing that they would never, you know, six months prior to come to university, it's nothing they ever consider. Um, But the downside of the program is within a year, you've got people who have never rode before potentially competing at like Henley and Women's Henley. And we had that in the last couple of years because we've got some fantastic athletes from that program who are now in the program. And, you know, I'm not having to go at anybody here. Sometimes as a coach, I might be a bit, I'll watch them on the time. I'll be like, why have you made that decision? Like, why are you doing that? But then I have to stop and think, they've done like 20 races period like that's it they're third year athletes maybe some even fourth year athletes but you've done 20 races because two of your years here were covid years and you didn't race at all in your first year um like your your first year as a dev you did like a cut you did bucks head bucks regatta maybe women's henley but you did like two or three local races and then your second year, you didn't get to race at all because it was COVID. Third year, you got like three races under your belt. Fourth year, you've had a couple in. So they've not had a chance to do all of those, make those mistakes in those race situations that you you can just learn your craft doing in all the little crappy ones that are actually really good fun because, because of what they are. They're just, you go out and get to experience racing. I think it's really important that you have that opportunity to make mistakes in a race environment but just at a regatta that, you know, if you don't get the pot, you don't get the pot. What you're essentially talking about is, is a grounding in the sport and a, a grounding in the art and craft of rowing and, a, mm-hmm. you know, a high performance program, which, you know, I'm sure we'll come on to, develops people and it's developing them for the top end of the sport, but it's not necessarily bedding in the skills that you need, you know, to develop into a fully rounded water, you know, water mm-hmm. person. We, I mean, we had a chat with uh, Jack Beaumont a little while ago, and he talked about the the importance of his club to him when he was a, a teenager coming through. And he mm. talked to, I mean, he, you know, he's very, very open and, and say, you know, there are pathways where you can go through world-class start and you'll end up at Cavisham. Mm. But the bulk of the people that he was rowing with ha- had come up through the club system and they'd, they'd all done the, you know, the small regattas on the Thames and surrounding rivers where you just, you, you row in that boat because they need a body or you'd go over here because someone needs you to do this. And mm. he said, it's such a vital part of the learning experience. And he was actually on board with the idea that every club in the UK should get an international for a season so because firstly it would let people see what the squad looks like and secondly it would disseminate skills and thirdly it would just it would connect the entire network instead of having this pyramid pointing towards 
the Thames all of the time. But I'm also curious about that because you started in this club en environment, which, you know, we've identified as being, you know, a really good yeah. place to nurture rowers when it's a good environment, you know, like yeah. we have at Tyne or like you had at Hexham through your school. But there must have been something in that summer where you grew because you, you ended up on a pathway quite quickly. It was a, it was a difficult one to, sort of, to describe because I didn't necessarily, I liked the environment that I grew up as a junior in. I did. But I sort of became more like disillusioned with it as I got older. Um, because when I first started, it was fantastic because it, it was a participate. It, my high school is a participation club. It's done. It has done really well. It, it's you know done really well in the past. We've we have Olympians as ex members. You know we have you know, world champions as ex members. Ex members have gone on to row for. Oxford and Oxford Brooks and Reading and Newcastle and Durham and other universities like Sheffield and Leeds and Edinburgh and which is fantastic but it's not a performance club it's that we don't have a, we didn't have a, our coaches were volunteers you know the top boat was in just a new Yanisek it, it wasn't like the traditional performance as you would expect like the decision to, to take a performance route was my own it wasn't a it wasn't a you, we think you can be a performance athlete or this is the part of the program where you decide to be performance or recreational it was i like this sport i'm you know fairly good at it i'm never going to be outstanding but i have to now take it upon myself to get better in order to be able to move on to what i want to move on to so it was a good environment to begin with but then as I got older and I started to real, it didn't align with what I wanted. It allowed me to do it, but it didn't, it, it didn't directly align with what I wanted. So it was sort of a, I still love the club and I would do anything for the club. And I have, I, I go back at every opportunity and I do, you know, I'm fully sort of, I'm so grateful for everything they allowed me to do because I wouldn't be the person that I am today without it. It has been so instru instrumental in my life. I wouldn't have done anything I've done at Durham without it. For like my last sort of two years, it was like a really sort of fine balancing act of having to do all this extra work and not really having the, the right environment for it. It was a good environment, but it wasn't the right environment for me to come up to really step on and be a proper performance athlete like you would sort of get at one of the Southern clubs. Having had your learning curve and you're now in, in transition, how did you open up that pathway into, I'm quite good at this, I want to get better, what do I need to do next? How did you approach that? And as Luna's put in the note, at some point we're asking you what your 2K PB is without being too pushy about it. So like the... The JIR pathway, like the junior interregionals regatta thing, mm -hmm. that was that aligned really nicely. That sort of J16 year with me sort of really getting into the sport and sort of be, but and also being physically capable of get really getting into the sport. We don't have very many big clubs up here in terms of like their junior squad size. So fielding an eighth for that regatta is not something that one club can can like do particularly well every single year. So some years you do get a club that has eight junior boys or junior girls and they can field mate. But it was more often than not up here that it's a composite boat. In my J16 year, that, that was the case. It was a composite of like five clubs, Tyne United, Tyne, Camus, Chesley Street, Queen Elizabeth. It was, that was like the real one for me because I was with guys that were 
you know, I wouldn't say any of the northern clubs up here are like junior performance clubs in a sort of very, but it was that boat because that boat was really good and I really enjoyed it. And we trained on the tying out of time rowing club and I got exposed to sort of their coaches and like the slightly another way of doing, of things sort of happening and doing things. And I was like, okay, I like this. This is a good boat. We're moving quickly. We did well at that regatta. This is the moment where I know this is the type of thing that I want. I've, I've done it a little bit. I really like it. I'm going to keep pushing for this. That seems like a fair old round trip. Just like get, I mean, were you doing that for a few weeks or? Yeah, we were doing, I was doing that for like three or four months. Okay. Uh, it takes me about, it takes me about 20, I can get to Pine in about 25 minutes from where, okay. from where I live. Okay, no, that's not bad. So it's not too bad. Um, and you obviously know it was huge, like, at that point it was like huge, you depend on parents and things. But we'd yeah. go down there and train like twice a week. Um, and I, you know, we would be given, we would be given like stuff to do and a program to follow. Okay. Um, at home. And that was something that I hadn't really, we'd had a program, but like in terms of a, a big goal, a crew that all bought, like a larger crew that really all bought into it and sort of people, say like people who were also like, physically the same as me and we were all like yeah. really pushing each other and it was like right this is the type of these are the splits we're going for this is what we're working at this is the target this is the goal and i was like oh yeah there's other people who are like pushing me and these guys are like around me and i'm around them and you know i need to be better because they're going to be better like the split's going to cut like we're going to post the erg scores on the wednesday and i know that i'm not going to be i i have don't stand very big of a chance a very good chance sorry of being on top of the list whereas at my my school club pulled the, yeah i was the, i had the topic in my year group it was like it was fine like it went back and forth between me and another guy for a while but then with these guys there's like eight guys who were all like gunning around it and there was definitely guys that were bigger and pulled better oaks than me and that, that sort of that sort of got it going that competitive environment that really sort of performance driven environment for the first time really got got that like got the bug into me there so you, you're moving through school as well at this point, academically, and you're also mm-hmm. developing a sense of, yeah. um, were you identifying as a rower at this point? Uh, and what was it about the sport that was resonant? Because we've talked in the past, Loon and I, and you and I have talked down about r- rowing isn't like any other sport. You know, you can be a good footballer at school. And, mm. and then once you settle down and have a family and a job, you might still play five a side on a Wednesday, but you don't say that you're a footballer anymore in the way that you might yeah. when you when you're at school. But if if you're a rower, because it's a it's essentially a lifestyle choice, because the demands of performance training are such that that you have to live it. You can't just pick it up and put it down when you feel like it. Were you starting to identify as a rower at, at this point? I definitely identified as a rower. It, it was it was I was. Dan the rower I wasn't Dan who rose which is something that I've sort of had to deal with post that but that's for later on I was definitely yeah it was it was all consuming like it was like four training sessions a week organized by the club and then additional training sessions and the other thing with because it was so almost out there at our school because it was never a thing that really other people did it wasn't a very well-known sport in the area if that makes sense you know that if you rode it was it felt a little bit like you're part of the leper colony you know like i'm sure you may have experienced that sort of thing people look at you and you're like they're like oh you row like what what why are you doing that like what's that for 
I mean, ju- ju- just yeah. to come come in on that point because the kids at my school, they know I'm a rower. They know that I'm actually quite good, and that they know that at some point I'll probably suggest them, "Why don't you try rowing?" I don't coach mm-hmm. rowing anymore because I I actually want to do rowing still. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. bec- and and the two things were just like the time demands didn't allow it. This thing that's come up again and again and again when kids are saying. I don't want to go rowing. You say, what not? It's like, because it's a cult. It it takes you in and it eats your life. And yeah. you have to give yourself to it 100%. And you cannot let anything else be in there. Is, is, that, is that just the way it is? Is that a bad thing? Are there other ways? I think because of the type of sport we are and because of how it's been set up in the past and how you have to behave to succeed in our sport, that it attracts a certain type of people. It attracts a certain mindset because of the training required Two 2000 meter race. Like in order to be really good at that, the type of training you have to do appeals to a certain type of person. It's almost like the sort of, that sadistic, masochistic type person, it, you know, for the you know for the listeners, Aaron's giving me the like the uh, the, the shake of the hand and the eyes. It, it does, um, and I think that's what some people don't get is because they have to just accept that you're going to have to give everything, and if you want to be any good at it, if you want to stand out at all, because the level. And the commitment to the training is so high. If you want to do any sort of good in it, you have to match it or exceed it. And I think because of the culture around other sports is that you can kind of just play five a side on a Saturday and it doesn't matter. The the other thing is with a lot of races, you only get a medal for winning in row. Like you you, you win or you lose. Like there's no like bucks and the olympics and the world championships are different but most normal regattas like you either win it or you lose you don't get you get nothing there's no runners-up medal either like kids playing football or kids playing rugby you get a participation trophy for playing you know you get you get a runners-up medal you lose your first regatta and no matter how much you wanted to win it yeah you lose your first regatta Yep. And that, that, that bugs people. It, and if you're the type of person that that really bugs, then you get sucked into rowing really quickly. And yep. I've rowed with people who have, have, have got the bug and people who haven't got the bug. And as soon as you kind of make that, as soon as it's obvious that, you, that to, me, to me as an athlete anyway, or as a junior athlete definitely, that they didn't have the bug, I didn't want to be anywhere near them in the boat. Okay. It was like, I, I'm, I'm prepared to like really go for this. Like I will do the training and then I'm rowing with people who are like, yeah, it's like just a bit fun, isn't it? And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not how, that's not how it works. That that's it's I'm here to win. I want to win every race. And we went through a period like, I think really good again, building the character. Like I think I won one race in two years at J14, J15. I got really, we got really good at losing. 
<laughs> like really we excelled at losing as my coach sort of said it was like watching an epileptic spider dance up and down the river comments like that didn't sit with me at all as a person it was like oh no i can't have that like and they're the people that you kind of get in rowing who really stick rowing are the ones that someone says oh but you, that was good but you could have done that better that that's it that's like a, a ball with a red flag yep. you know even though it, even though perfection is unattainable it's impossible rowing attracts perfectionists because there's always something else like you can never ever be good enough yeah. which is also a huge downside to the sport it can become very very wearing Mm-hmm. in that sense because you can come off the water after a flawless row and i think that you know if if you know we're on the podcast we could all sit down and probably pick you know two or three performances where we went we that was amazing that was perfection and then we all got off the water and went right so what we need to do at the catch is we need to focus on mm-hmm. the yeah. next thing and that's yeah. session a couple of weeks ago where i sent you a really nice video of the other masters sculling and they're taking it along really nicely. Like it's working really well and it started to click for them. And we're, I was really happy at the time. Like, yeah, this looks really good. Boats run really nicely. And then I watched the video a couple of days later and it's like I'm watching it in my mind. It's like I'm watching a different video. I went from being looking at it being like, wow, this looks really good to how did I not notice that that's wrong and that's wrong and that they can do that better. And all that was happening, all that happened was I just, I was watching it like two or three days after I'd recorded it. Yeah. And it, it, which is fine. Um, that's what you do. That's why you take footage. So you can pick up on the little things that you sort of miss in the moment. But what type of approach is that? Like nothing's ever good enough. Like you're not satisfied with any session. Like even that, the senior athletes I deal with at Durham, they can come off the water and they can be really positive and really good but they'll find something wrong. It's kind of the mindset you need to be to, to make a boat move well. And for some people that turns them off the sport because mm-hmm. it, it, it's actually too difficult. And it's like, well, where's the satisfaction yeah. in that? Um, but some people, you know, um, who, who go on to be, you know, good oarsmen or, or, or good rowers, they take that as a, a challenge. So I think we can probably answer your question, Loon, by saying, it's a cult, but it, it's one that gets you really fit and makes you very attractive to mm. members of the opposite sex. Yeah, sorry. We kind of, we, Aaron and I dived down a rabbit hole there. It's actually a really, really interesting rabbit hole because, okay, strictly speaking, because we're old and yeah, we've been through all this. Like I said, I mean, we, we got chewed up and spat out by the whole Henley thing. Mm. And... So, you know, the ethos of the pod is that we've always tried to said, find the way of rowing that you enjoy. Row for fun. Yeah. And that, that is, I genuinely believe, and, and arguably the club I'm in, um, which is like tiny, tiny little thing, and we've just got a load of novices and a few veterans, mm. and we're just trying to build up the club. That's what we do. We just we just go out on the river and we row for fun. And I row with people who are still working out this whole, you know, what I do with my fingers at the, at the finish. And that's great. 
But at the same time, the person you are describing, I am that person. Yeah. I am that person. I am the person who genuinely would sit next to a Brooks boat in Ghent with Matt Tarrant in it, look over at him and just say, you better get it right the whole way down the track or I'm on you. Mm-hmm. Two lengths within 250 meters. They just had us. They were better than us. I didn't care. That's the point. The reason why you can sit in a boat now and paddle for fun is because we actually, you can do it at, the, at that level because we were consumed by being better. And yes, okay, we didn't win Henley. There, there are there are hundreds of boats who don't win Henley, but we look at all the other pots and medals and races and things that we did absolutely smash it. And reaching for those standards actually made us better rowers, which means now that you know we're old and grey, we can go and paddle around and look like we know what we're doing and actually enjoy moving the boat. So, so that mindset of taking on the challenge is surely, it's, it's a, and the, the, the reason we flagged it up, Dan, is because we're going to come on to HP environments, which you obviously went through with your junior program and then in, in, into Durham. That psychological, it's never good enough, can be mm. very damaging um, for mental health, but it's mm. an intrinsic part of being a rower if you want to perform. Yeah, I think my my perception of rowing is like just going back to the being able to do it for fun. Like my perception of rowing before I ran the dev program at Durham and after I ran the dev program was is completely different because I took on athletes there who'd never rowed before and I was like persuading them to join to try the sport and I've got to sell them on this sport that has taken me in, chewed me up burnt me out and then just dropped me so i'm trying to sell them on this sport of how amazing rowing is when i won't even get in a boat myself so that sort of changed my perception of the sport uh, hugely but then also having them changed my perception of how people should view the sport because you take them in wanting them to be performance athletes and i took 24 rowers in in my first year as dev coach and like five of them are still in the sport. And at the, at, as of the start of this year, none of them row at a high performance level. That's a, that's a big attrition rate. Yeah, but exactly. But they, they did have to go through the first year of COVID. So they didn't do it. They did all the winter training and then none of the summer stuff. Yeah. Did the worst part of the sport and didn't get to enjoy any of the good bits yeah. to go, that go with it. Like no nice paddles in the sunshine in June, that sort yeah. of perfect time, Henley campaign sort of thing. But when they did row and now that they row, like I got to the point where I was like, I don't care. I just want you guys to enjoy the sport. Like, because they would be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm not, I said the ones that dropped out of their own sort of free will. Like, oh my God, I'm so sorry that I'm not going to be a high performance row anymore. I'm not going to row for the university. I sort of got to the point where I was like, actually, as long as you guys enjoy what you're doing, I don't mind that. And then that was sort of compounded when I started at Tight United. Um, I tried to bring a high performance mindset to it and a bit more of a, and, and sort of that structure with it. But at the same time, like, if some of our members are just, like you and I will have in-depth conversations about technique and structure and things but other members just want to go out and have a nice paddle yeah and they don't think about it from one session to the next yeah and i have to be okay with that 
I have to understand that that is all that they're that they're there for. Mm. So I have to, I had to change my approach to the sport and be like, you can just row because you like it. Like you you cannot be you can just you can like it and not be worried about performance, and just paddle and never race and still like it. And that I had to change my my approach. And the dev squad started that because I was like, you're my you're almost like my rowing. They are my rowing children. Okay, uh, you know, you you bring these people into the sport who've never been before, and they kind of look to you for everything. Mm. And you spend so much, I spend so much time with them that I just got to the point where I was like, as long as you guys are happy with what you're doing, I don't really care. Like, if you're happy in the sport, if you're happy being performance athlete, fantastic. If you're not happy being performance athlete, I want you to just enjoy your rowing. Go to Dark Rowing Club, fantastic rowing club. Go to the go be part of the Durham University College system, like boat club system fantastic system and just enjoy you like, i'll see them on the on the weir and they're just having fun paddling and i'm looking at the boats being like oh god it's like i trained my athletes to be better than that but then they're really happy with what they're doing and i have to be okay with that as i've got older and matured a little bit i understand that the sport should just be fun and like the fun has to come first above everything else you should enjoy what you do so that sounds like it's been a process of realization. So I just want to wind back because we, we've gone around the houses, which we mm. tend to on, on this podcast. It's part of its, it's part of its charm. And it's, it's why we have a, a listenership that we count in the high three to fours on mm. a given week. Um, you are in the junior program. You're coming up to academic choices. You're identifying mm. as a rower. It's a big part of your identity. You are Dan, the rower, not Dan who rows on the side. Mm. Yeah. So talk us through your trajectory and your pathway into did you have objectives in the sport that you thought, right, I'm at this place at 16, 17 years old, I'm pretty decent, this is what I'm going to do? Yeah, rowing affected all of those. Uh, rowing had the influence on everything. Like, in, and the most sort of obvious one was it totally controlled where I chose to go to university. Like, as a junior, I'd had, I've sort of been exposed to like, the, the end of the Durham decade, mm, yeah. where Durham were just undefeated and whatever Wade Hall Crags did just turned out excellently for Durham. So I'd sort of seen the end of that. I'd sort of, I saw the end of it. I saw it finish and start, you know, but I'd seen the whole thing. And so, and then I'd seen the rise of Newcastle. Like, so it was something that was very sort of obvious to me and it did inform all of my choices really. Um, everywhere was looked at as, how good's the boat club yeah like it didn't really matter academically where i chose to go it was what's the boat club like so did you look to the did you basically look to the north or the south or did you basically look at everywhere that had a decent university structure in place but uh um, rowing yeah it, i mean did the, you look at places like oxbrooks and, and and places on the on the thames or I I looked I looked all over yeah absolutely um in the end when my, I when I first was supposed when I first sort of went to university um I was supposed to be a blue star okay which it's supposed to be a Newcastle man yeah supposed to be a Newcastle man sitting here in my Durham you know fleece <laughs> and all the time I've spent at Durham thinking back that I nearly became a blue star and nearly became a Newcastle University rower is I met with Angelo like you know I was like yeah, I was properly invested in it. So thinking 
that I nearly made that decision is actually like super. It's a such an alien concept to me because I was supposed to do computer science at Newcastle, and then just decided that that not that was not something that I wanted my life to. You know, I, I like the whole STEM field, but I was just like, I can't do it. I did an internship, and it was like we coded all day, that sort of thing, and it was like, I was like, is this it? And they're like, yeah. I was like, right, that's that's not me. That's not me. I can't do that. I'm used to I'm used to being out and active and on the river all the time and like you know that yeah. sort of thing with people engaging people fresh air mm-hmm. out busy not yeah. staring at the screen for the next 40 years mm-hmm. and so that changed my that so i had to I sort of dropped out and had to reapply and then durham was the only place that i wanted to go after that like durham was the only place i applied to second okay. time around for ucas oh if i didn't get durham i wasn't going anywhere that, that's real kind of cutting the rope off below your feet so you can only go in that direction uh, mm-hmm. approach. What were your actual, I mean, obviously the academic thing is pretty clear was, you know, it's part of the package, but the main focus was on the boat. What did yeah. you want to achieve at, at, at Durham? It had to be, it had to be a Russell group. That was, and Durham ticked that box was fine. Um, but in terms of when I, what I mean by project was, I, like I said, I'd seen the end of the Durham decade. I saw the sunset on that, you know, um, and I didn't want to be part of a program. I didn't want to just be like another year in a really successful program. Um, that whole building and the hard work and the other stuff that go that went into it, um, the other stuff that goes into to rowing is what I sort of wanted to have at my time at Durham. I wanted to be part of the change. You, know, you wanted to build whole, it back up. That whole, yeah, build it back up. You know, I'd seen what it was like, and it was something that was amazing. Like, you know, 10 years, Fate to Lidorum Bucks regatta is huge. And I'd sort of seen that play out, and I'd heard about it, and I'd, like, bump into people from Durham, and I knew people at Durham. And I was like, yeah, I want to be part of that. I want to help it get back to where it, I think it deserves to be. That was the big, that was like the big draw. Um, so I didn't, in terms of like individual things, I had never really, I was never, I was more of a big picture team thing when it came to that. So individually, I didn't really mind. Obviously wanted to win medals and stuff, none of which actually happened. Um, the, for whatever reason, the burnout brought an end to my, my individual athletic career since then going on and coaching has sort of allowed me to like live live through my athletes almost um and they've done really well and we have won medals since and it's it's a fantastic achievement and we're sort of starting on this whole process of we've been through three head coaches in the last sort of year um and we're now starting to gain a bit of momentum we did very well at box heads I uh, won the ladies VL and won the championship men's eight championship men's four and got the silver in the quads, I think pretty sure. So, we, and then won both intermediate eights. Like, so we've started to really like turn that corner and that's what I wanted to be part of all along. And I wouldn't have had the opportunity anywhere else. I don't think because of the type of program that Durham is. And when and sort of when I happened to join that program, um, 
in terms of there's not many like top university clubs. I say top inverted commas. People can maybe question where Durham is because it's sort of on the rebuild, and it hasn't been as successful as maybe it's wanted to be for the last couple of years. But in my opinion, it's still up there. It's still one of the big clubs. The, in my opinion, the best job in rowing is the Durham University Dev Squad coach job because you're given this program every year and you're like, my directive from Wade, who was the coach at the time, was this is what I want. Just do it. And kind of go about and execute your plan how you want to. Like follow the rough training program and I'm here if you need anything. But like they all athletes just, go and enjoy like go and do it do it how you want to do it which is great because you get all the free you get the freedom but then you also have the support of this program and you can kind of like ad lib it and just enjoy the whole process but i wouldn't have had that without i wouldn't have had that anywhere else like i it's sort of i fell into the job i just sort of burnt out and i was like done with rowing and I was like, right, I'm just sort of going to, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm probably going to go away, sort myself out and come back into the program. And then the previous dev coach had just sort of quit in the end, the end of the summer and they hadn't appointed a new dev coach. And somebody sort of, I, I, did with the, I sort of joke with this person that I didn't want them to say what they said, but... Wade was so sort of, oh, you know, we've got we've got all these sessions coming up with the learn to row course next three weeks, and like we haven't got a coach to to run it. And the basic was like, if he didn't find a coach to run it, he was going to have to run it. And you know, it's a big thing, and nobody, you know, it's like three hundred sessions over three weeks. It's just absolutely brutal. Um, and then someone was like, oh, but Dan, you're a, and as soon as they started talking, I was like trying to leave the room. I was trying to get out of the room as quickly as possible. And they were like, damn, you're a, you're a level two coach, aren't you? And you sort of, his ears like pricked up and he was like, oh, Dan, you're a, do you fancy doing the learn to row course? And I'm like, at that point, I'm like, oh God, like Wade's been really good with me. Like he's just seen me burn out. He's been like super helpful. Um, he's really support. He's, he is supporting me with this. Something I didn't think he would be like, but he was fantastic with me. And it was kind of like, yeah, okay, I'll do, I'll do a couple. And I started doing a couple and then a couple turned into, yeah, I quite like that. I'll do it for the next week or so. And then the course finished. And then it was like, right, we're going to appoint, we're going to um, interview for people, interviewed people. And then he was kind of like, uh, you know, do you want to do it? And it was, it was as much, I think probably it was as much as, you know, you're already here doing it. You kind of, do you want to see, do you want to see it through? And I was like, at that point, I'd just been bitten by the bug again, a different type of bug. I, then that's how I got into coaching. So that's how I got in on the whole process. And that allowed me to do what I do now, which is being part of the rebuild, but in a, in a, in a, in a way that like links with and it connects with me far more than being an athlete was actually getting to be part of the coaching team and really be part of that rebuild. It's something, it's the reason I came to Durham. It's the reason I'm still involved with Durham. It's that I kind of got dragged in and never, never got off the ride yet really you went to Durham because you had a very clear objective you knew what the history was you you knew that one cycle was over you wanted to be part of um rebuilding that mm -hmm. that club and 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 you know pushing them back to where you felt that they should be 
that didn't necessarily happen for you as an athlete, but it's almost like you're fulfilling your ambition um, in a different way. One of the questions I want to ask is you, you've used the word at least four times, probably about burnout. And I, I just want to link back because we've talked about athlete identity and you're very, very clearly identifying as a rower. You've been bitten mm -hmm. by the bug. You had very, you might not have had individual medal, you know, tally objectives, but you had a clear objective of, of, of what you want to do. Would you mind talking us through how did that happen? You know, what, what, what was your kind of break point? How did you reach the point where you went, you know what, this is too much? I didn't realize I reached it. Okay. I, I just, it, the, the doors just fell off. It wasn't like a, I knew what was going to happen and I could see it was coming. It kind of just happened and I was like, explode, like sort of an, a bit of an implosion. It was a it was a multitude of things really. Um, the program was very different to the type of program that I'd been on before, and that took and any sort of program where the the volume basically doubles. You know, we were training twice a day, six days a week. That volume took a long time to, and that was that was something that I had adjusted to. But we were in sort of a block, a very intense block where everyone was super tired, and we'd done loads of mileage, and we were in a a really short but intensive like weight block and we were academically coming into what we would refer to in Durham as summative season so when all these summatives are due in second term and then I had like the additional pressure that my dad wasn't very well at the time so and I was I was sort of dealing with all that sort of stuff so I'm going to hospital appointments and I'm checking on him and I'm making sure he's okay and I'm still training as an athlete full-time and I'm still a student and then I'm trying to be a person as well you know it's like that person first a student second athlete third but I was trying to be all four of those things at exactly at exactly the same time and you know when you're getting up at five o'clock in the morning for a 6 a.m weight session uh, weight session or a, a, a 15k paddle on the water at 6 30 and then you're training again at 6 p.m. and you're getting back to college at 7.30 and you're eating and then you're going to bed and you're trying to get a bit of work done or whatever. It was just this cycle. And I got basically got to the point where I was seeing the Team Durham psychologist. I was in the session and I had a 2K test that afternoon. And I was like, I'm going to bomb it. Like, I'm going to, I don't feel ready for this at all. Like, I'm tired, I'm fatigued, my legs ache. I'm mentally not in the right place um, for, you know, a multitude of reasons, you know, the family thing being quite a big one. And I was just sat in the session and we're going through things and we're looking at how we plan and how we I prep and how I sort of mentally prepare for these sort of things. And he was, he was like, all right, we've got 10 minutes left. Let's, let's wrap up. And I was looking at him and I was like, I have to say something. I've got to say something because if I don't, I'm going to go and do the 2K test in like two hours time and I'm going to pull like a 650 and, you know, mm. everyone's going to lose their shit because I shouldn't be pulling the 650. And I just kind of turned to him and I went, actually, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. I'm not good. This is not going to go well for me. And he kind of just looked at me and went, all right, okay. I was like, I can't do that. And we spent the next like 10, 15 minutes talking it all through and he went, right, okay, I'm going to go get weighed right now. And he went and got Wade and said, you need to come and speak to Dan. And Wade just looked at me and went, you look awful. 
like he just went you look terrible and i just looked at him and i went like oh yeah i feel it i was like tearing up a little bit i was like yeah i just do feel terrible i've just not got anything in me at all and once i sort of once the doors came off that was it i just kind of like dropped and i i burnt out i had absolutely burnt out and that was that's why I have a very different sort of a, I have a very different approach now because I've been through the burnout and um, I understand what it feels like to burn out. I now know what it feels like to be nearly at the burnout. I'm taking two weeks off work now. I work in a school, getting the decent break, but I'm not coaching at all. And this is the first time ever that I've gone, that there's rowing to be done and I've gone, actually, no, I'm going to take two weeks. Yeah. Because at the moment I work seven days a week and very close to sort of being at the end of like a week to go at the end of the term and i'm like like there's a lot of coffee going into getting me through this and it, it sounds like a classic cumulative i mean not just with the durham program but your whole identity is wrapped up with being a rower and when you're a rower yeah. you don't you, you don't let your team down you don't let your boat down you don't let your crew Absolutely. down you do all the sessions and then you've got to be a person and then you've got to be a student and you've got you've got you've got mm -hmm. deadline pressures for that i mean firstly i'm i'm sorry that you, you you went through it i would imagine though and and loon and i um we've probably gone through something similar with balancing everything you know mm -hmm. when we were in the war at agecroft and you're balancing, you know, 40, 50, 60 hour weeks. I, you know, I was doing my PhD and teaching. Lou and had a full time job and 20, 24 hours a week of rowing and then trying to have a life. And do you think that your experiences, firstly, there was a sense that, that um, the Durham psychologist and Wade recognized it. As soon as you said, actually, I'm not okay. It was almost like they were waiting for you to do that so so they could they probably knew that you were in a bad place but that mm. sense of recognition must have firstly been thank god i've reconnected with someone it's you know i can start climbing out of this um how long did it take you to recover and has it made you more aware of the pressures as a coach on athletes yeah it took me it took me a long time to recover like fully recover mm. like you're talking like a year really because when i say like burnt out i mean like like there, i was just, i was like done there was nothing like, left in the time nothing was, left yeah. like i i was like i was like physically and emotionally spent yeah um and it was a relief because you like you said that you're i'm coming back from the hospital and going to sessions because i'm like i have bucks regatta coming up and like i can't be letting the people in my boat down mm. because in the same time they didn't know what was going on like because you don't tell because you don't tell people because you kind of just assume that that's how it has to work and that was like a naivety in me as well so it took a long time to, to recover and partly was because i had to stop being a rower and because i was damn the rower stopping being rowing was really difficult mm. stopping rowing so it was really difficult stopping being a rower was because my social life my the structure of my week my sort of self-worth and identity was all linked to this sport and when that got taken away there was like 
what do, what do I do? Like all my friends, all, most of the people that I'm like friendly with or I see on a regular basis at university are rowers. Like I don't know that many people at college because I spend all of my time in Maiden Castle. And that was fine. I, I loved what I did. I wouldn't change what I did. I loved being an athlete. It was fantastic. And I think that everybody should experience it. it I think it's something that you should just, everyone should be, just get to enjoy. But my identity was so wrapped up in it that it took so long to get back to it. And the coaching was a big part of that. It sort of changed my, it allowed me a balance. But then at the same time, it did again all like consume my life completely. And as I've got older, even like even like the last year or so, through the second year of COVID, that allowed me balance because you were forced to because we had us we had the time off, and when you did come back to training, it couldn't be in full capacity, so things were very limited. And COVID allowed for that. COVID helped with the balance so much better than anything else because you were just forced to have balance you were forced to have flexibility like sessions had to be flexible training times had to be flexible and it just it allowed for me to understand what balance was and then when it comes to how i deal with my athletes it, it definitely i think make puts like that new generation of coaching style into perspective for me because i do understand what it's like to go through that whole program and the intensity and do all the other stuff and like I had an athlete a couple of weeks ago who's had to change a few boats around and she's been moved from a pair into a single and she's not a very experienced single scholar and the conditions at the time, the time went fantastic as you might, you know, surprise, surprise. And she's just like, I can't do it. I, 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 can't, I can't do it. Like, not that so I'll do it if I have to, like, if you make me do it, I'll do it. And I was like, you're getting upset about doing a, a paddle in a single. Like there's more going on here than just you having to do a paddle in a single. Mm. Just, yeah. No. Take because the, the reaction is bigger than what I'm asking yeah. you to do. You know, it's not like it was a, it was like a 12K UT2 paddle in a single. Like, it, you know, it's a bit, it's boring, but it's not. It's not life or death. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you're like sobbing uncontrollably in front of me. Like, there's more going on here take like go for a run or i'll open the boat shed and you can do an egg because your happiness in the sport is more, more important because if i push you through this session that's when the resentment for rowing starts to build up and then you don't like it as much you don't enjoy every session because you're being forced into it and then you start to lose the love for the sport so i think it it gives me a, a different perspective like in a greater perspective especially when dealing with my athletes because I can understand how, as a coach, you see them as performance indicators because your salary is, or like your job security is dependent upon their success, basically. You know, I'm not saying that's how people, everyone sees it, but it's like football managers. Like football teams don't play well, managers get sacked. You know, with rowing coaches, programs don't do very well, budgets get cut. And you can see it, it doesn't take long for you to see athletes as just sort of objects that have to perform. You know, that's not how what I think Durham is at all. But I think athletes in general, you have to be able to go. They are people and individuals, especially at a university level. 
they're like 18, 19, 20. Now, this is the first time they've ever been away from home consistently without their parents or without, like, if they've been to boarding school, without somebody checking up on them. They're having to cook for themselves, study for themselves, and train, like, 30 hours a week. There's a, and, do all, and do all the work that goes with it. There's a lot on their plate. And you have to just sort of take the, like, stop using the stick every once in a while. Because if you just push someone and push someone and push someone, what they're going to end up doing is hating the sport and just leaving the sport of rowing completely. And we have such a problem with that. And yes, it is because of the commitment that people like late 20s, 30s stop the sport and come back later. But I have watched people and rode with people who get to the end, get like, I, I know like three people who have rode consistently through university. Like this is at multiple different universities who've rode consistently at university their entire time. They've managed to row in the university program for three out of their three undergraduate years. Most other people just get there, do like a year, and they're like, right, I've done it. It's too much. I'm going to leave the sport completely. Or they have a bad experience and they leave the sport completely. And that's not what we want as a sport, is like the people that should be the best at the sport and have the most time for the sport to just turn around and be like, I hate it now. I'm kind of hogging the questions a bit, Lewin, uh, but actually what Dan is talking about, people like Jez and, and a, a, a couple of the, uh, the elite athletes that have been on have talked about programs where we tend to look at rowers as um, these kind of bulletproof individuals. We had this joke that, you know, Steve Redgrave had obviously been carved from granite by Viking stonemasons and let loose on a vengeful world and all of that sort of stuff. If we are celebrating people who are essentially surviving a brutalizing program, that's not the right way to be pushing our sport forward or, or building it up as a participation sport. I will, I will always say this, that, Dan, you, you said it earlier, the coaches don't set the work. The work is set by the event. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially, uh, it, it was, oh God, Mike Calveston. He basically, he, he was in charge of like one of the top end women's programs in the States for a long time. And what he said was, you don't have to do all the work, but that comes with consequences. That means you're not going to win races. And to a certain extent, we do admire people who are capable of withstanding that and then succeeding because of it. Where I'm very worried about is, is the fact that not everybody can withstand it. You can have very, very good athletes who can't withstand that. And actually spotting those guys, and I, I, I personally think that in the entire sport of rowing, the big thing that we need to work on at possibly, you know, unless you're talking about like kind of the, the coaching camps in the Italian lakes where, you know, you get on like the Chinese double skull and the Spanish quad and, and just like small boats that are sent to these places to become Olympic finalists, essentially. And there they work on a very, very individual process. The, the idea of the club system where everybody, there's the training plan, you go and do it. 
and everybody is doing those sessions because everybody is in the same boat, instead of looking at it along the lines of there is a certain training stimulus that I can expose this person to. Otherwise, and if I go beyond that, they're going to break. And there is a different level for every single athlete. And there are some athletes who can withstand the highest level of training stimulus, but they're not actually getting any better faster than people who are doing five sessions a week. And I think the kind of, there is a tyranny of six days a week arguably better is having a more individualized kind of examination of what is making rowers go faster the standardization of the british rowing stroke is in my opinion the reason that that has happened yeah because the british rowing became professionalized basically because it was given the directive that medal hall wasn't good enough needs to be better we're giving you a slash are going to give you a load of money get better now yep and at that point everything got standardized the british rowing stroke model became standardized the sort of this is what we expect to create athletes type of training program got standardized and that individualized nature of the sport was taken out completely and it then became a numbers factory it didn't matter how fast, you know, how nicely you rode or how quickly, you know, you could scull the ugly sculling that works re- that works really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, ju- ju- just look at yeah. like a, a world championship final where yeah. it's not, you know, uh, so Pretty much everybody rows the same. Like, yeah, you look at like you can look at. Well, OK, you say that six they didn't... from six different countries and they all row like they were taught in the same you know you can see a lot of people that but con- like continent wise you can see yeah. loads of like if you, you look at like the the european continent people everybody rows pretty much the same every now and yeah. then you get an anomaly where one crew rows slightly differently you know that you like they my sort of the biggest one is like you look at like eric murray and hamish bond yeah like they came from a completely different system. They rode completely differently to everybody else. But they had like, was it like eight, eight or ten years in a boat together? Yeah. Just uninterrupted yeah. time in a boat together. Like they had rowed together before their, like for like three years or something before their first Olympic cycle. Whereas we, like some of the British rowing athletes, they go into a boat like three months before the Olympics. It's basically because we have so much money in the professional side of the system, rowers are being treated at the elite level as units that you can move from boat to boat. So you can slot Lego bricks. Yeah, like Lego bricks that you can slot in. Mm -hmm. Um, But previous to that, one of the reasons that that an Andy Holmes and a Redgrave worked and then a Pinson and a Redgrave worked when they or a a Martin Cross and and a a Redgrave worked in the in the fall when they had very, very different styles was the the individual ability to blend a crew together and um we've we've talked to eric and we've just talked to drew Jin, and he he actually flagged the the uh the kiwi pair up as you wouldn't teach them to row that way in a standardized program and the way they've set their boat up and he he talked about taking a hacksaw to his boat to move the seats and the footplates around to get the you know to get the the run that they wanted at 36 Mm -hmm. 
And they couldn't use that boat for paddling at 20 because it just wouldn't work. But for Olympic finals, that, that he said the biggest gains to be made are by understanding that athletes are individuals and actually, you know, working on, on making their individuality highly specialized will create the next great leap forward, not standardization. Yeah. It's about how the boat feels at the end of the day. Like if the boat, if the boat feels like shit, it's running like shit. If the boat feels like it's moving, the boat is probably moving. It's one of the sports where if you, if you know what the flow feels like, that's it. Like you, every rower know, like I can say to both of you, like, you know, when the boat's running because it's flowing and you might use different terminology, but you sit there and go, yeah, I remember that feeling. I know exactly the type of feeling you're talking about. And you don't develop flow overnight. It takes, it could take months. Mm. It could take, it could take years. Years. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And in the case of Hamish and Eric, it's a perfect example. They had an unbeatable rhythm together and a Mm. flow and an ability to work with each other. Then you look at them individually and you know, Eric's like what six foot four, like built like a built like a wardrobe. Yeah. And Hamish is like like six one. Like completely different builds. Lengths, spans, and yeah, it works so well. But it's because they have the time to sit in a boat together and just work out everything. Every part of they knew every part of their stroke. Every part of their stroke worked because they spent years together just knowing exactly how it felt to row with each other. And that sort of level of individuality is the thing that made them so successful. Mm. They exploited all the other bits. If you put someone in a standard model, they're only going to be, they're only going to maybe achieve, and Lewis talked about, mentioned this a little bit earlier, which I, and I hope this is along the lines of, they might only read like 80% of, how good they could be in the model. Yeah. Like, like if the model is going to make you 80% of the athlete that you could be. They'll only be as good as the standard model allows them to be. Yeah. And, but it means you'll, you'll be 80%, you'll be an eight out of 10, but we can put you in any boat. You can go from the single to the quad, to the pair, to the eight. And like, it'll take days for you to gel with you for you to like work with your crew because you all row exactly the same mm. but that extra 20 percent that you get from just breaking the mold is the difference that and you don't you can't get that you can push the standard model for years and years and years and years but you're never going to go that 80 percent is your ceiling because it doesn't work it doesn't tailor to individuality of athletes that extra 20% you get from tailoring to the individual strengths and weaknesses of athletes. And the standard model doesn't allow for that. I think that's a good point. If we were to pivot then, because, you know, we've talked about that. I got on with, with Dennis because he basically told me, he said, go and do that. And I go and do it. Loon and he had a slightly more fractious relationship because he'd, he'd say, Loon, go and do that. And Loon would say, why? The point was that he had a system that that worked. It was a it, it was a program that worked. How do you take that belief in flexibility and individuality into into a, what I guess is a system or a structure like Durham, which is obviously very successful as well? 
again, the job that I have at Durham now, definitely, it allows me to focus on the individual. But it's because I don't have to deal with anything else. I am a I am a an assistant coach in the in the remit of like I coach sessions, I coach athletes on the water, and which is great because I do get to do the best parts of it. Yeah, I get cold in the winter all the time because the only bit I do is outside, but I don't have to do any of the, I don't have to do any other paperwork. I do other little jobs and things, and that's fine. But I get to spend my time with athletes and thinking about just technical ability on the water in its entirety. You don't have to do other things. And I think it's hard when you have university athletes because they are like the third thing in their life should be that they're a rower. Like you get them in, Wade used to say this to me and it was again, really instrumental in how I approached my, like me dealing with my athletes was like, they do this in their spare time for fun. I remember that. Like they're not like they're choosing to to come down here in the time in which they're not doing other more important things. And I think it's a, that's make that makes it much harder to focus on the individual because the one size fits all model is much more time efficient in an environment like that because you just worked this standard plan. Everyone gets the same amount of attention, the same coaching direction, and it makes it so much more efficient and easy when you're dealing with numbers and you're under those time pressures. So I think because of the way the system's being created, it's it, it's taking individual individuality out of it because of how the system has to be run. Because it's from the top down, you have to abide by the top of the, the pyramid. Of, otherwise, it just doesn't work for you. So I think while there is a certain element of individuality to the program uh, that we're part of, it's it, it can't be as individual as maybe it would want to be because it has to feed into the British rowing pathway. And the British rowing pathway, and you either have to be compatible with the pathway or you're not compatible with the pathway. And it's sort of you're taking direction from something that you can't change. So you just have to be part of that. The question that I want to ask there, Dan, is Durham is, you've got the devs, which is mm -hmm. great. Uh, and it's really good to see because we had a chat with, with Rory Copus um, from Oxbrooks or formerly of Oxbrooks. And, you know, we know a lot of rowers who uh, took up rowing at, at, at university for fun and it ended up becoming kind of you know a defining mm. part of their lives and that's that's people at agecroft but it's also people like kath bishop who discovered um rowing when she went to university mm -hmm. never been in a boat before yeah andy andy hodge the same uh, you know it was he was very cheerful in admitting he was no good at school and then he went to uni and he he, he did like a, a a test for a bit of pizza and found out that he was good at rowing and you know all of those yeah. things a lot of universities like Oxbrooks, Rory said, essentially, if you want to learn to row or you want to row at university and you haven't got these scores or you don't meet these metrics, don't come to Oxbrooks because mm -hmm. we are a performance program and our job is, is to win things. It's in our thing. It's, it's yeah. in our kind of mandate. Durham has its devs, but it is fairly obviously a, a high performance environment. If you look at the university literature and the way that the, 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 the rowing um, structure is positioned within the university it's selling itself on the idea of the 
of the rowing squad and its results. The coaches are funded and paid to deliver those results. Mm. We are obviously very aware of the dangers of, of burnout. Lewin's touched upon the idea of um, the physical stimulus of, of high performance training, but you know, you yourself know what it's like when you're a rower, you're also a student, you're also a, a member of a family, you're also an individual. All of these students have all of these things going on. And I know you've just said it should be third on their list, but we all know that once you're a rower, it's kind of the rowing comes first and everything else you fit around mm-hmm. it. Like, you miss you, weddings, you miss birthdays, you miss, you birthdays, miss, you miss parties, you miss yeah. nights out, you miss, you know, you, you miss a lot. You sacrifice a lot for it but, but because the big pic- you're a big picture person or you're a process driven person, mm. you know, I, um, I did, that's what I did my dissertation around was what type of psychological profiles did my devs have, did rowers have? And it, mm. the majority of rowers are either big picture people who see the goal and like, right, that's the type of goal that I want to achieve. And that's why they put up with dealing with all the little things, the 6 a.m. starts and the rain and the training on the water in December or you get a process-driven individual who fixates on perfecting new skill sets and acquiring new skill sets. So it attracts those types of people and it's always going to attract those types of people because of the type of sport it is, because of how complex it is, because of how many layers go into training. Um, but the dev, the dev program, I said I, I will never speak highly enough of it. Um, it's a really interesting program, and it allows access to the sport in a in a way that is very different to any other sort of pathway into it. Um, I had two different recruitment models in my two different years. The first year was we just went off like wattage. There's like they did biometric tests and like a uh, like wingspan height, all that sort of stuff. Sorry, not biometric tests. Um, and they did 1Ks, uh, seven stroke match, watts tests. And we just picked off the most powerful people, like the best 1K rate 24, combine that with their power output. And that was the way we recruited. Uh, and then in the second year, I recruited purely off. Um, talent ID specification because I, I was going to take less athletes I had less time I ended up having two months to get them from never being on the water before to Bucks Regatta so I needed people that just wear athletes so it was like men six foot two and above I'm sorry if you did learn to row a course in my second year as dev coach because if you went six foot two walking through the door as a bloke I, you didn't exist to me you know and if you went a woman above five foot eight you didn't exist like i was just looking at getting athletes through the door and that was part of the directive as well like wade wanted bigger individuals in the program we had quite a short squad at that time um and he was like i want big people through the door i want people that are gonna like people that you're going to walk up next to and go like, wow, you're a big bloke. Like, and we've got girls that are above the five for eight quota. Like we have people 
who are in the program now who are ex devs who don't who wouldn't have been recruited by me right can, can right. i can i just ask something because mm. apparently there's something about the yale boathouse and it was it was literally they selected the junior varsity squad by if you had to duck under the door yeah. you were in um do you have things like that do you have visual cues in your working environment that that let you kind of like all right ah oh, five foot nine all i was doing was i would see a tall person walk past and i was like putting myself in front of them like hi i'm dan do you want to learn to row basically yeah they they've they've been doing that since 1994 if i can get you to do the course i can i can do, i can get you i can sell it to you but when they do the form they sign up initially and like they give their name and their email address and then we send them some stuff and then they send us back another they we send them a google form and on the google form it asks for height well, like, like a rough estimate of height. If you can give an accurate one, that's fine. And even like my second year of it, we, I did I put wingspan on it. Okay. I was getting like first years measuring their wingspan with like, I don't know how they managed to do that. I don't know where they got the tape measure from for it. But like I was getting first years like measuring their wingspan. So before they even turned up at the start of the learn throw course in my, my second year as dev coach, I had, I'd fill, I'd got that spreadsheet and filtered it. Yeah, okay. Because their heights came in in centimeters. So I was putting a filter on it. And it was like, if you're not between, if you're not above this, like you weren't even on my list. And I would just have okay. a list of names. I'd have one list of people who were at the session. And I would have one list of the people who were like, I knew were above the height, my height cutoff. So I knew that they were coming to that session. And I was like, and obviously I'm taking a register of people before they before, at the start of the session i'm doing the whole like hi i'm dan you are you know billy kate steven all that sort of stuff so i know and and i'm just doing that so that i know that the i know exactly like the one person on my list that's in this session i know exactly who you are and you know i'm gonna i'm gonna make sure that i'm honestly making sure that everyone enjoyed their rowing because we wanted the it's the the reason the learn to row course is there is not it is its dual purpose is to assist the college rowing system in helping sort of teach give us give us a base level of, of skill set to all rowers in durham but it's also there for us to recruit from it does both yeah. so i've mm -hmm. got to make sure that everyone rows to the same level but the, what i was doing was i would i my one of my ex devs he's like six foot four 115 kilos like former swimmer built like a shot putter like the first ergy ever pulled the first 2k ever pulled was a rate 24 2k and he came to me before the learn to row session he's like third one and was like what's a good 2k i was like i don't know like i would look for like a first timer for like 645 your first ever one he was like, I pulled a 632 like two hours ago. And I looked at Maximum it. drag by any chance? Yeah, probably. And it was yeah. like his college, it was in his college gym on a battered old erg. And he did it at rate 24 and he pulled a 632. And I was like, look, do you want a space in the program? Teach everybody, but also like 
make sure the ones that I wanted in the program knew that they would be good rowers. I'm like, you'd be really good at this and you should definitely come along and like ask me any questions you want to know. Which is kind of where I was leading with, with the, how do you negotiate as a, as a coach in an HP program that whose program is actually one of the, one of the selling points the university uses to get mm -hmm. people to come to the university to negotiate the tension between I need these athletes to do this because I need these mm. results. I need these medals. I need these placings, but also these are 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds, you know, their, their, their brains are going to be developing for another five years after they yeah. leave university. They're away from home for the first time. They, they've got to develop into a rounded human being. That's part of the university mm -hmm. experience. It's a really, it's a really weird thing to try and strike. And I've been kind of lucky that the, the people that I recruited to the program, um, sort of, without even meaning it, the people that I recruited to the program are all really good people. Like none of them are, I, I, you know, I like all of them. They're all really strong individuals and really good at what they do. So I was kind of lucky with that, that I sort of happened to pick people that were, you know, that are good people my, my devs are good people and they are like they are strong independent badasses you know like they 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 are they were built for this but at the same time there were it's a little bit of I picked well and I will always think that because they're mine um but then they were attracted to the sports because they display certain psychological characteristics and like they wouldn't have been but there were obviously people that I approached to join the program who were like, huh, uh, excuse me. No, I came to university to drink and study in that order. But then, you know, like the, the devs that I recruited last year, a very much more targeted approach. You know, you've got former um, county champion, middle distance runner, former nationally ranked swimmer, um, county long distance runner, county rugby player, um british junior triathletes um you know rugby um one of them was um you know army otc cadets like they are a certain subset of people they have they already have the psychological characteristics that you want in athletes they're just looking for a new challenge and that was that's really easy because they already they already understand what it's like to be part of the environment Mm. They're just applying it in a different environment. But then in my first year, I had other people like there was like, I took one of them to hospital because she broke her ankle on a night out because it was like, get to university, no parents. I'm 18. I can buy alcohol. And like, she, she texted, we had this whole thing that like we discussed this as coaches. Like what, what is the line? Like where do we, where is the line? Like, what do we do for athletes? Because, you know, you see some coaches that will do, that do anything for their athletes. They do just like baby them. And you have other coaches that are like, no, they'll, they're adults and they'll do what they want. They'll do this stuff and I'm just their coach. And we sort of talked about this like previously. It was like, if you've got no other options, we'll take you to hospital. Like if you do something like that, because like, we're not just going to let you sit at, in your, uni halls if like someone from college can't take you you've not got any friends that have cars you've not got someone in the program that can take you like we will drop you off so this is like two days later she's like dan i just need to go to 
like, I probably need to go and get an x-ray. I'm like, right, is every, if you exhaust all the possibilities, yes. Right, okay, so I'm gonna have to take you, I'm gonna have to drop you off. So I took her and a friend up to the hospital in Durham, dropped them off, and was like, right, you're there. And this is an adult who, you know, I've got two sides of that spectrum. Um, and I can totally see where um, the Oxbrooks approach comes from, because they are now, they're almost now so far down the line of success that they can't do anything other than succeed. It's fantastic what they've done. It's a little bit like the Durham decade. You make a rod for your own back by being so successful that you have to continue to be successful. And the whole don't come to us unless you've got a 6, 25, 2K. Yeah, they're, they're within their right to say that because they are such a good program. They have the, the, comp, they have the competition for places to make it possible to make that to make a claim like that don't necessarily agree with it because i think you lose so many good people along the way doing that but i get it it's just a it's a really hard balance to strike and you can't be too forceful with your athletes because if you push them because you want to push them because you're like you guys can do this you can be so good and amazing i lost athletes that were could have been fantastic rowers but like you can push and push but then you have to realize right i've been pushing i've made it obvious that what they can do and what i think they have the potential to do and what i'm prepared to help them with but if i keep pushing they're going to leave anyway like they might leave if i stop pushing but if i keep pushing they're definitely going to leave because they're going to be like oh my coach danny's just like pushing all this work on me that i don't want to do and at the end of the day they chose to sign up to do it so you have to push but then let them it's mutual effort matched effort and you have to just sort of have a bit of faith that they'll match the effort it's that um it's that thing you you can push them but if they you know you can lead a horse to water but you can't make mm -hmm. a drink if they don't have the drive to take it on themselves and we yeah. had a coach we had a coach called kev maynard at agecroft who's an absolute legend of a man kev earl of salford um and he used to say he basically molded the, the the novices into units that Dennis could then sort of use. And his thing was, look, I'm not your conscience. If you turn up, I will coach you. I will meet you halfway, but I, I'll not, I'll not ring you to find out where you are. I won't, you know, I won't chase you, but if you turn up, I'll, I'll work with you. Yeah. And, and the, the weird thing was once, once you kind of realized that and you, you kind of, if you did meet them halfway, there was literally nothing that he wouldn't do for you. It, mm -hmm. he, he would, he, he was a fantastic rower in his own right. He was a great coach. You could sit and talk about technique, work with him on things. If you, if you booked a session at seven o'clock on a Wednesday night and no one else was out and you didn't have a, he'd come down and drive the launch for you, but it was all about, you have to want it. Yeah, definitely. I had that. I set that out really early with, with my devs and, you know, again, Wade was hugely helpful in sort of helping me create my like philosophy as a coach mm. uh, because I was still very new to this whole thing. Um, but I was like, look, I don't care what you do. I care that you're safe and that you look after yourself and you like eat and you're not like getting paralytically drunk every night and that you are studying and you are sort of being a decent human being. But if you want to go out on a Monday night, as long as you make the Tuesday morning session and you're not like throwing up in the corner, I don't care. Like the session starts at, like, on time is five minutes late. 
that was Wade's that was a big thing that Wade put into us. And I agree with you completely. It's like if if you turn up at five, if your wait session starts at five to set, if you wait session starts at seven, you arrive at five to seven. If you turn up at five to seven, I don't care what you got up to. Like, you know, if you engage in the session, apply yourself while you're here, that's fine. Because you have to, you can't control every aspect of their life. You have to sort of let them crack on. And as long as you're turning up, honoring the commitment and giving your best while you're here, you guys can have your life outside of her and I don't have to know about it. Like I, the, the, the athletes will be like, oh, did you hear this? Did you, do you know what happened to this social? And I'm like, no, I, I don't. I don't need to know. I don't want to know because, and that was a funny balance because obviously I'm still a student at this point and like, I know them and like, I might bump, you know, I didn't socialize. I tried to not socialize around them or with them. Um, but, you know, sometimes I like, mean, my friends would be coming home from the pub and I'd walk past them, you know, and it, but I didn't want to know what was going on. I didn't need to know what was going on as long as they turned to their sessions they could do whatever they wanted and you have to sort of let them the whole horse to water thing you have to just let them crack on at some point because they just need to they need to have that freedom you can't control every aspect of their life you have mm. to control what you can control just to pivot slightly dan is that something that you've picked up as part of you know we introduced you as as a modern coach and what we mean by that is you're probably of the generation that has come through the standardized model of British rowing, um, how to coach. You've probably done all of your courses, whereas, you know, you know, the Dennis's or the, or the Kev's of this world will remember that, you know, the, 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 the days of the eighties and nineties when you just shouted at people to get them to do what you wanted sort mm -hmm. of thing. Um, what's your take on, you know, what do you think modern coaching approaches have given you in terms of being able to deal with what's in front of you at the moment? I think I'm I'm lucky that I I've, I've got to I've got to work with like what I would say is like old school coaches. Is, is like, that with people like Wade and people like Wade? So I had like I've had like I said I've had three head coaches within the last year at Durham: Wade or Craggs, Ian Shaw, and now Rob Dauncey. And they're they're sort of all older gentlemen who have been through the sport for the last like thirty years, really. And so I have got to I've had to I've been able to see how they've adapted through the sport as well. Um, and that was that's quite that was really quite good because I got to see how Wade adapted. And like how he sort of had his still had his old school traits, but I was sort of bringing the new stuff in. And the same with Ian, like he was, um, he embraced like data and power to weight type stuff, and um, doing work based off like wattage and things. And then Rob's sort of like the most recent coach to come through the GB system, and coach at Leander, and then work with him. So. I've had the perspective of sort of my approach to coaching and how I want to be coached, would want to be coached as an athlete and my experience as an athlete. But then I've also had been able to see um, three really good examples of like old school coaching. Um, so I think you having that has been really beneficial 
um, but also understanding that there's a, a different way to the standardized model. I think modern coaching isn't modern coaching is understanding the standardized model and then understanding those flaws of the standardized model and not blindly accepting the standardized model, but then also having a a greater understanding for the what is welfare within rowing. Um, and I think that's something that we've like there's become a lot more prevalent if like all the mental health stuff surrounding uh, athletes and the surrounding sport in general and sort of the more modern uh, world mental health and things has become a, a um, become really important and I think going through like issues that I've had myself has allowed me to have that perspective it's all about perspective modern coaching is about perspective understanding all different perspectives and working through it um, so I think without all the experiences, I wouldn't have the same approach I have to modern coaching. I think it's a holistic, whole-centered approach that you have to, if you really want to get behind it, you have to have experienced old-school coaching. You have to know what old-school coaching is. You have to know what it's like to be an athlete. Um, and you also have to know what it's like to want to be treated as a person within the sport rather than a than just a rower. So the, the that approach has been developed by like all these all these different things and but it's weird I I find that the whole modern being a modern I don't think it's a, being a modern coach I don't think it's anything of being a modern coach it's just the environment that I've had to coach in and had to grow up as a coach in it's been like the right mix of old school and not liking the old school as well i think that was a big thing experiencing some of the old school stuff and being like no i don't like that like, as a as an athlete yeah as an athlete i had to experience it as an athlete like just there's some old school stuff i've just been like no nah, i'm not a fan of that i don't like that yeah. i don't like i don't like being treated like that i don't like behaving like that i don't like the the way the way of doing it i think the other thing is um the big thing was that made me want to shift to be a modern coach or like a coach that approaches the sport in a modern way was we were doing things in the program and i know other people from other programs who are just part of the program is like we're doing it because it's always been done like that like why are we doing this particular piece of work why do we row like this because that's that's just how it is that's how i was taught that's how it's done I hate that. I hate that as an athlete, as a coach as well, because it's always how it's been done. No. Like, explain to me why it is the best way to do it. Like, I come from a data-driven perspective. Like, I, my degree is in sports science. I like the sports psychology element more, and that has also changed my opinion of things, is that exposure to sports, sports psychology. At the same time, like, the physiology stuff, like, we're taught that back whatever, if you're going to say something, you have to back it up with evidence. It's This is the best way to do it. And this is the evidence that supports it. And somebody just, I will have a debate. Like, you know, I've talked to Aaron about it. We have people who be like, I like putting a pause at the finish. The same Paul's sort of approach that just sit there and pause. Like, tell me why 
if you can explain to me in a data directed manner how it's the most efficient way to row i'll have a conversation with you about it but then at the same time if you're just telling me that it's you think it's the best way to row i don't think it's the best way to row so we're not going to and i'm your coach so we're not going to do it um and it's that will it that like unwilling that sort of like hesitation to just explore and back it up with data i think that's made me shift my approach that if i'm going to make a decision it has to be backed up by data if i want to change the training plan i want to add a different piece of work into the training program it's because there's some data somewhere that tells me that it's going to make the change that i wanted to make and i can back that change up and it's not just like a feeling or this is how it used to be done there's an actual like reason behind what we're doing for what we're doing it for and i just think that that's the way to do it that's why i like the ox brooks have a different approach they're sort of very selective approach but at the same time it's a what they do is like backed up they have they're able to adapt with they'll be they are able and they will be able to stay on top of the curve for a while yet because they adapt how they train based off the data that they work with and it's going to allow them to stay on the edge for a little bit longer i'm not saying forever because you, you know you never know but they've they've embraced modern coaching and it's helping them stay at the top edge and i don't see why you wouldn't want to embrace modern coaching and this isn't you know obviously we go through evolutions in the sport and you know you can go all the way back to steve fairburn or you can go back to sprackler and you can look at Redgrave as a, as Jurgen's man, but actually, even in Sydney, if you actually look at what he's doing at the catch and where his back is, he's still he's rowing a very dynamic Sprackman style within the mm. within the the parameters of the of the of the GB stroke profile. But what you're actually talking about is a lot of coaches and a lot of people. This isn't just in sport; it's it's in life. Mm. They find models or patterns that work for them, mm. and that becomes the way that they then go through the rest of their life because it's worked yeah. before. So we'll keep doing it. Yeah. And that's like an old school approach of this has worked before, so we'll do it again. Whereas the modern approach is this has worked before, this is what the data says, and this is what we'll try. Okay, so now we have two lots of data, and this suggests that a little bit of this and a little bit of that are actually that's that's definitely better or whatever. And you're talking about flexibility and being mm -hmm. almost prepared to be wrong in order to step forward. Would that be yeah, fair? Definitely, like that whole black box type thinking of you learn from what doesn't work combined with um the theory of cognitive blindness is that just because it works and just because it you think it works and it works to your perspective doesn't mean that it is the best way to do it someone else from a completely different perspective will walk in and see it's something completely differently and offer a completely different solution to the problem and you have to embrace that because we're being told and shown in other sort of walks of life that change isn't a bad thing if the change is backed up with the evidence to support the change. The thing that I was going to suggest is, is like kind of... Okay, so as a sports scientist, do, do you ever get worried that you're not working with good enough data, both both in terms of what you can read and um, 
what you can actually get objectively from the athletes. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm, I'm I could be dealing with like sixty people, and that's like sixty cases of human error could come into. Because I haven't got, we haven't got the system, we haven't got the infrastructure or the, the even like the budget to manage eighty people's data. So like you look yeah. at like heart rate zone. So heart rate work, for example, we haven't got sixty heart rate monitors in the club. Yeah. You know, like we are, if we're looking at heart rate data with individual athletes, chances are we're working off their personal device and you're having to, you know, you hope that they've got it set up correctly and that it's read the right data and it's done the right sort of things and it's given accurate readings. And then we're there like, you have to sort of look at that when you haven't got full control over the collection of the data and the equipment that you're using, you sort of have to look at it like with a pinch of salt, you have to take all that data with a pinch of salt. So it is something that, um, that it plays in the back of the mind. And it's the, the way around it sort of, in my opinion, is you have to use more than one piece of data. Uh, we can't just use, we, we have to find another way around it. That, has to be something that backs up everything that we do it's not good enough for one piece of information to back up a, a decision we make you have to have different um it has to go three or four ways when we come to seat racing it's not just water performance it's ergability it's um the way you move in the gym it's mental like the mental direction because even the seat racing it can be Incorrect, like it can be inaccurate depending on the conditions can change on the course on the run you know the line doesn't the line isn't the same the tides aren't the same like the tide strength changes throughout the afternoon and like 15 minutes on the time the tide's completely different still flowing in the same direction but the tides change complete like the strength of the tides change completely and it's going to affect the performance so you have to use you have to be prepared to use more than one set of data and you have to also look at the data. You don't want to be super cynical and critical of the data because it is there, but you have to sort of understand that the data isn't going to be perfect because you can't control every single aspect of its collection. Kind of struck me um, in terms of, you know, reading sports science papers, what, what passes for a big enough sample size mm. in sports science yeah. Would in medicine or pharmacology, or particularly where I came from, genetics, be, you know, it, you know, you you wouldn't you wouldn't get approval to do the mm. experiment or to do the study unless you had ten times as many people as yeah. that's yeah. happening. I mean, do, do, does it ever worry you that you'll get when you're doing sports science and trying to apply even more, trying to apply sports science as a coach, hmm. that the information you've got there, and I think rowing is terrible for this. Yeah, because is, the sample size in rowing is even smaller. Yeah. So, hmm. I mean, it, it, it's like, uh, oh, it's, it's not Valerie Kleshnev. It's another guy, Canada. Um, he's written, he's written sort of, how to row Bulk, Bulk and Nolte 
rowing faster, author of. He he did a he did this thing where he he basically said we've got this different way of doing UT two for five weeks, and it was, and he kind of like and he's presented it on some podcasts as like the way forward that everybody's going to be doing. And it's like these really, really intense bursts hmm. follow like, I think it's like something like eight stroke bursts at 140% of 5k watts. Hmm. And you do that and then you, and then you row really light for 20 seconds and then you do it again and you do it again and you do that a chunk of times. Hmm. Um, and this improved. 2k performance by about like one and a half percent of watts mm-hmm. with like this massive error bar either side yeah. and but he did that with about 16 rowers male and female and i just thought how much can you actually tell from that i mean is is, is that i mean it may be a statistically significant result mm. But you know, is that is that enough when you look when you're saying, can we take things forward? Is that enough for you to say, oh yeah, yeah, you know, we'll we'll bank a season on doing this? Yeah, I take um, rowing specific uh, research. Re, I look at it really skeptically, just because of the sample size. Yeah, um, and the, the the pool that they draw from. So. Unless it's been, unless I can see it in a program, or see it in more than one program, that like research around rowing is yeah. that sort of the general, more specific stuff won't even really look at it. Um, the more general things around like VO2 max testing and the uh, like all the wingspan testing and that, the relation to elite performance that goes through wingspan and stuff, um, that's a lot better. But we, but it's really hard because you have to, for me, it has to be backed up by a program. I have to see it in action in another program. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, it's not, it's not good enough by itself. Almost um, like if, almost like if it's a sample, that's one thing, but it has to be real world tested by. Yeah. The real world testing is a must for, for rowing related data. It has to be because the sample size isn't big enough. I have to be able to see it play out in person. Um, either positively or negatively uh, the research alone isn't enough and I'm not going to particularly bank a season on it yep. um, because season to season like your funding is depend- your funding is controlled season to season yep. like if you have a bad season and you lose the funding then you're back to square one yep. so it's really hard like we in my first year we used adapted we used like Soviet era adapted stuff. So we were doing like a critical, we would call it critical pace. And yep. it was like 12 times 90 seconds with 45 seconds to a minute rest between piece. And it was a, it was a, a swimming interval program. They'd been adapted. Okay. Um, and I was so happy enough with that because the sample size was quite good because it was a Soviet era piece. It was used across the whole of the Soviet Union swimming program. Um, 
you know, long term, you know, entire kit, like, you know, entire year. Um, but we'd also see, like, and again, the Soviet era research, you have to take it with a pinch of salt because of with all the doping and things. But um, you got to see the performance change take place. So, yes, we were adapting a program that wasn't sport specific, but the sample size was good and you know the performance indicator was there the proof was in the was in the pudding that we'd seen it like you could look at the results the results had happened we knew exactly what they were that was much easier but no rowing related data is because just because of the sample size it's it's really hard to trust um I, i would like to think that it's all super accurate and would love to give it a try in some bits definitely have given it a try in terms of the interval work really keen and like useful interval work to you really keen to use interval training methods um favor the intensity of the duration um as a, as a coach and like the way i would want to run a program and the way i would adapt a program um to fit so like the modern needs and I also like the the direction I think rowing is going to have to go. You know, in terms of what's going to have to happen at the, the within a couple of Olympic cycles, we're going to shift. We're going to have to shift to a much more intensity based, a direct like program and directive. Why is that? I think that we're going to get British rowing is rowing is a sort of. It's a very traditional sport, and I know you guys have sort of touched upon it in the past, but it's not exciting enough. Yeah. And we're at the moment we're in the Olympics because we've always been in the Olympics. But in a couple of cycles time, when they start adding more sports like skateboarding and BMXing and surfing and like uh, speed climbing, Rowing's going to run a risk of not making the Olympic um, roster because it's boring. 2,000 meter race. No one cares about 1,500 meters of it. Yeah. And I love, I love the sport and I really like it in its old fashioned ways. And when BMXing was added and that stuff, I was like, oh God, why are they putting BMXing in the Olympics? Because it's, it's sullying the greats, you know, um, this sort of like gladiatorial like match of amazing physical specimens and like BMXing is a skill sport you know it, it, and, and that was my opinion and it certainly has changed after watching Tokyo being yeah. like yeah this stuff's really interesting and like people get behind it and like it's much more appealing to a younger audience and the viewership's better and I can totally see why stuff like that could replace rowing if rowing doesn't change because we haven't yeah. changed for hundreds of years and we need to, otherwise we're going to lose our spot. So I think, and as touched on before, the training programs throughout the country reflect the needs and demands of the type of racing that we do. And as the type of racing that I think will change. We'll move to like a 500 meter sprint where you can have spectators packed along the bank of the full course of the full 500 meters and they'll be able to watch the entire race start to finish. 
Yeah. The view might not be fantastic from some bits, but at least, you know, you will be looking over a mile down the track to the start. <laughs> yeah. You'll be able to see everything that happens. You'll be able to see the start and the finish, and you'll get a pretty good view in between. And because of that, training programs will have to change to allow for the adaptation. So you, but, you reckon it's going to go down to 500D? Yeah, 500, 250, something like that. that what, what, like a sprint regatta. Yeah. What, what about kind of backwards and forwards relays? So literally... I think, it'll, I think it'll be a combination of the two. Yeah. I think it'll be backwards and forwards relays where nobody really gets eliminated, but you sort of progress through it and everyone races like four or five times or six times or whatever. But it'll be over 500 metres. I mean, in what is it? In twenty twenty eight, it's going down to fifteen hundred. You can see which way the sport is going, but we haven't got there yet, so we have mm. to deal with what's in front of us. Are there any areas that we haven't covered that you would would like to flag up or bring up? We'll just quickly go on to British rowing. Like two minutes at British rowing. Our last standard question is: what What is British rowing getting right? What's it getting wrong? In, in your in your opinion, without burning any of your future bridges, yeah. and if you want to weigh in on on why we went from being the world's dominant rowing superpower um, to what happened in Tokyo, then feel free because we have several times. Um, I like the in terms of the, everything is expressed right now is my own opinion. Um, Mr. Aaron Jackson is not forcing me to say <laughs> That's Dr. Jackson to you, young Dr. Daniel. Jackson, sorry, Dr. Jackson. <laughs> um, but what I like with what the program's doing at the moment is it's becoming, they're not just objects anymore. The, the athletes are coming out and being like, this is hard. I'm not coping with this. I don't like this bit. I'm still doing it, but it's hard and I don't like it. And I like that. I like how the, the sports sort of letting us know and letting us see that they're not these almighty gods chiseled from marble. You know, mm. um, I like I like that because it sets a realistic expectation for 90% of the people that are going to row are not going to be that even more. So it sets a it sets a much better sort of standard for everybody else that these people aren't just freaks of nature like some of them are freaks of nature but they're also human alongside that so yeah. i like that that we're sort of opening that up more and it's less this mystique around oh my god all these amazing people they are amazing what they do is fantastic but it's but they're not automatons and they're not robotic and they do feel things and it does hurt and it is mm -hmm. difficult yeah and they're allowed to come out and say that they struggle with the program and they struggle being parents and partners and university students at the same time and you know Stan Ludis took a break from his studies so he could row like he admitted that he couldn't do both mm. like that stuff's really good but then on the other side of it the bureaucracy in the middle level of British rowing to me is the biggest problem with British rowing and the GB rowing team Okay. People are petrified to make a mistake, so they're not taking any risks at all. It's safer to just be average and not rock the boat, pardon the pun, than it is to put yourself out there, potentially get it wrong and then get sacked. Because jobs are on the line and mortgages need to be paid and 
you know, kids are expensive, whatever. Like, so I can understand why they behave like that, but it's not going to make us a cutting edge force that takes risks and pushes the boundary and pushes the envelope and is not afraid to get things wrong because too much is riding on it. Too many people are earning too much money. Has does that mean that the the kind of the momentum that we 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 took from Redgrave and we took on you know into the rest of the program in in the noughties and through London and through Rio, is that why other nations have started to catch us up because we've almost stagnated a, a little bit and it's a little bit of well we've always done it like that and it's always worked but but no one's looking for the next steps that'll keep us ahead of the pack because. They are worried about that. Well, this, you know, this is my job. It's a performance industry. You know, results matter. And if I don't get it right, then how am I going to pay my mortgage? Is there is there that kind of almost corporate paralysis, and and it's really slowed us down? Yeah, I I think so. The other thing I don't agree with is the coaching committee. Yeah, um, you're not the first person to <laughs> suggest that. that. Yeah, I think because. Yeah, people didn't agree with necessarily how Jurgen ran the program. Some people didn't like it, but you knew what was going on. You knew who made the decisions. You knew what the decisions were. It was black or white. And yeah, I don't think I don't agree with black or white because it's not as simple as that. When you throw in all of the factors concerned, you have modern coaching and the perspective that I think people should have is that you have to understand the full picture that it isn't black and white. But that being said, it allowed athletes to know where they stand, know where they stood, know what was good enough, what wasn't good enough. Um, it allowed coaches to know what was what was expected of them and what wasn't good enough and how they have to behave and how what they have to go out looking for, you know. Um, and having like loads of different coaches making loads of different decisions and all of them throwing loads of different things in. It's too complicated. Sometimes, you know, less is more. Having a clean direction followed, like controlled by one person makes it easier sometimes. And I think when you put too many people in, there's too many people making decisions. There's too many things being thrown out there. You're like all over the place. You're like, right, where's the information coming from? What am I doing next? Who am I listening to now? Who makes this decision? Who, oh, but that person made the decision last time, but then this person's going to make the decision next time. Like that coaching committee feeds the bureaucracy it is fed by the bureaucracy and it doesn't it, it just slows everything down it adds red tape and layers whereas a, like a, a clean sort of top-down structure was like right this is how it's working and we're just doing it like this and it just allowed things to get done much more much faster in a more efficient way um but too many cooks spoil the broth all that sort of approach sort of just what springs to mind when I see it. And because there's too many people, lack of accountability. And that's my biggest thing from Tokyo is that we lost a, a tradition, like a staple of British rowing, of world rowing died at Rio in the fact that we weren't able to retain our gold medal in the fall. Mm. You know, and, and I know, you know, there's a Durham alumni from that boat and he's sort of very, you know, his 
his what did he, when he spoke at our Olympic dinner, he was like, "I'm the guy that fucked the Coxless Four at Tokyo," and he's very sort of, you know, his approach to that was just that. Like he said that, and I'm not sort of commenting on individual performance and behaviour about that boat. You know, it's a race. What happened happened. And it's no one in particular's fault, regardless of what actually went down. Um, my thing is, we were going to lose it eventually. Like, we were never going to win it. For It was never, ever, always going to be a GB thing that we won the four every single time. We were going to lose it eventually. You know, or we weren't going to get the gold eventually. But, and it just happened that it was Tokyo. But when it happened, like, no one kicked up a fuss. Like, there should have been outrage, in my opinion, that we lost it. Like, not directed at the athletes, but more at, like, how were we able to get into that situation in the first place, where we even stood a chance of not meddling? Like, we finished fourth. Like, mm, yeah. if we were fighting for it, and it was, like, gold, silver, gold, silver, like, bow ball to bow ball stuff, that's fine. I've not got a problem with that. That's that is racing, but to not even medal, and it was almost like no one cared. Like mm. the lack of accountability, and afterwards nobody came out and was like, "If you're going to be there, and it probably gone wrong, you probably walked out and gone, yeah, my fault. I'm the head of the program, so it's my fault, regardless whether it is actually my fault. Like the buck stops with me, but with a coaching team and committee." And like board members making decisions, it's really easy just to like not own up to anything. I believe in accountability of mistakes. That you take at, you take responsibility for your mistakes. Yeah, it's allow it allows you to learn. It allows people to respect the decisions that you make because you stand by them. Whereas no one's come out from British Rowing and gone, yeah, this is what went wrong. It's kind of just like. Ooh, that happens. We'll just kind of pretend and not talk about it, and we'll just move on really quickly, and hopefully nobody notices. Yeah, I, I, I personally think that that is there is a tradition of doing that that goes back for at least a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I, I, I think that there will be very, very powerful private recriminations. I mean, but you can go back and you can look at. You can look at Rio. In in Rio, we had the biggest budget that we've ever had. And a chunk of that got taken away because we didn't make the medal target. Um, we, we went from being the dominant power in women's rowing in London, uh, a gold and two silvers out of three events first second and second now three events to not making a single a final in rio and that was you saw the decline it went from there and then a load of athletes quit and then there was nothing to replace it and the results got worse and worse and worse over four years and we just ended up with this absolute nadir and literally crickets You know, and, and, and that's that's going back six years now. But realistically, I believe the rock was there 
from 2012 onwards. Um, and, you know, you, you go back into that kind of early part of that decade, the whole fiasco with the Oxford Brooks Rowers getting popped. And, uh, you know, one of them was got popped for cocaine, essentially. The other one got popped for modafinil. And if you, if you do a, a very, very small amount of reading, you find that modafinil is endemic. Modafinil, uh, sorry, or modafinil, or I'm not sure how you pronounce it if you're a doctor, but the abuse of that drug is endemic in Oxford and Cambridge. And it's endemic at Oxford Brooks, it's endemic at Oxford University, and they will not have been, or that one guy would not have been the only person who was using modafinil to stay in the rowing program and keep working at the same time. Rather, and, and it is a performance-enhancing drug. It is a drug of abuse. All the guys on Victor Conte's program were on modafinil as well. And rather than saying, there's a problem here, and we need to kick the door down at Brooks and say, everybody is pissing in a cup right now or will never be considered for a British rowing best ad infinitum. Rather than actually really making a clean state, really making a statement, they released this utterly adenine statement, which God knows how they thought that people would not say anything about it, but nobody did, saying, oh, yes, the athletes concerned made a terrible mistake, but we accept that the, uh, the banned substance they took were not, strictly speaking, performance-enhancing drugs. Well, they, we hope they will take this one-year ban to reflect on the choices they made. And it's just like, hang on, what are you talking about not performance-enhancing? Go and read about like just colloquial testimony of how you behave and how you act on modafinil. And you find that is the perfect person. You become the perfect student rower. You all distractions just leave your life. You wake up, you go training, you get changed you do your work and the only problem is you've got to force yourself to eat on time are you saying Lewin, that the the silence that happened after tokyo i mean you know um matthew and james both both put their heads above the parapet and got pretty roundly shot down i thought i actually after the final matthew asked the questions that needed to be asked and james in his pieces was actually quite nuanced in 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 why we reached that state but that silence, and, the, and let's be honest, there has been a review process, but it hasn't, no one's come out and kind of said, this is what happened, this is how we're going forward. Are you suggesting that this kind of, uh, it'll be all right on the night um, attitude, or this kind of, this kind of uh, no, we're not going to talk about it, or this head in the sand attitude has been there for a long time, and that's why we are where we are with British rowing at the minute? Yeah, they, they don't want to do accountability. They They, you know, I think, I, uh, okay, I'm, I'm not going to second guess them, but the idea that British rowing ever does, we will 
own our mistakes publicly. That doesn't happen. The, the idea that people will are expected to take responsibility for poor performances above the level of the athlete. And even then, it's quite possible that the athlete will allow will be allowed to be less than entirely forthright about how they got to that position. Even if they're saying, yes, it was my fault, I put my hand up. Yeah, I I they they don't like saying chapter and verse a clinical analysis of what went wrong, why it was wrong, and how we're going to fix it. That doesn't really happen. So it's, there is adamant statements. So it's likely that it's going to happen again. I mean, Dan, do you see us coming back from Tokyo and Paris in, in a very short space of time? Knowing some of the athletes that are on the, like the Paris program, um, or the Project Paris program, I think we have some really good people coming through on that program. Um, I agree with like, Lewin when he was like, the rot was probably identifiable in 2012 because you know it doesn't take a genius to work out that your top guys have one more cycle in them and you should be preparing for the end of that for when they left and when they left it was almost like oh my god like all these people who were like really like quite old for rowers just decided to leave out of the blue like where did this come from no it's quite obvious they were going to leave we just didn't prepare for their leaving. We were like, well, I don't think we've prepared adequately for them leaving. Um, and some, someone should have been able to realise that. Like you made the sort of the football analogy. So Alex Ferguson was fantastic at that. He knew that some of these guys had like two years left. So they would just be told to leave. And someone else would brought in. He was always planning. That didn't happen at British Row. And I think we could do so much better with that. Um, and on the, the side of the performance enhancing drugs thing, um, in my opinion, is that, that sort of drugs is rife throughout high performance sport of, at all levels in all sports. Because, you know, being able to do some of the things that they can do with the recovery time needed, sort of a very cynical approach to sort of long distance running, uh, sprint running and long distance cycling. Just, you know, history has shown that pattern dictates that, you know, they probably are mm. because so many people get caught out eventually. And my sort of opinion of what should be done is there is no slap on the wrist that is you're gone. And lifetime ban means you are never appealing that. That is never being overturned. Like you have, um, is it Justin Gap and the American sprinter? Yeah. Come back from two lifetime bans, I think. Definitely one. I'm pretty sure it's two. He had yeah. Two over he, he served two bans. Yeah. yeah. He served two bans for the same thing. And they still went back in the sport for a third time. What does that show? That like 
you know, you, you might get banned, but also like if you appeal enough and you've got a good enough lawyer, probably get back in the sport. Mm. So lifetime ban should be a lifetime ban. And it should just be, oh, you got caught with it, right? You're gone. Because that's the only way that people are going to listen. That's the only way that people are going to observe that if the consequence is so severe, without it, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll serve a two-year ban, I'll come back. Or I'll appeal my lifetime ban and get it overturned. And it turns into a four-year ban or a two-year ban or a 10-year ban. And it's not lifetime ban straight away out the gate for anything like that. And it should that shouldn't be it shouldn't be at the discretion of the governing body. It shouldn't be, British rowing shouldn't get to make a statement about that. British rowing shouldn't get to handle, handle that. They should just yeah. be told, they should be told that that is how they are dealing with it. That it's mm. not like, you know, we trust them to, that it's just, they're not, it's a misuse thing. No, if they've been caught with any sort of form of drugs, any form of performance enhancing drugs, that it is a performance enhancing drug. They don't get to debate that. Yeah. It, it, like it says, like you said, the research states that it is. You know, that it, it, they don't get to interpret that how they want to. The research says that it is, and then there's like, no, no, we're telling you this is what's happening. I think. Yeah, it has to be independent. You can't clean yeah. your own dirty laundry. Exactly, because when you clean your own dirty laundry, you mint, you whether it's consciously or unconsciously, try and affect the outcome to li- to to put as le- the smallest amount of negative impact onto you. Yeah, the British Rowan are going to try and make that that the, the least painful thing possible out of just the need for self-preservation, which you understand them doing. Like, you know, you get why they would behave like that. It, it's not a hard thing to understand why you would behave like that. You know, it's natural human sort of behavior to try and minimize the damage inflicted upon oneself mm. yeah you know but at the same time it doesn't it's not Which beneficial is... in the, it's not beneficial in the long term yeah someone else it has to be somebody else someone else has to have the review process and they have to have overall decision about what goes on lads but... we've talked for we've talked for three three hours yeah and we've only we've only just got onto the fun bits See, Lou, and we, we men of the North, we like a good conversation. And, I and, think so. And occasionally when I'm not talking, people have one. It, it's been a good one. Let's call it a day there. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for letting me ramble. Um, no, it, it's, been, it's been genuinely brilliant. It's been really insightful.